Uh, we're going to jump in now without further ado, and I invite you to grab your um, blue Bibles out from under your chair and the outline you got when you got, came in. And uh, we are in part 12 of our Isaiah series, and uh, the uh, message is entitled, Wake Up! <laughs> so I thought I'd just get it started early, okay? We're going to get fired up early today. Uh, if your alarm wasn't loud enough, hopefully that's a, a wake-up call, because uh, the book of Isaiah from the get-go has been meant to shake us out of our doldrums and out of our complacency and into an active, passionate life of obedience with God. And if you've been here with us since the beginning of the year, week after week after week, I mean, Lance has been bringing out the machine gun and the rocket launcher and the grenades of God's uh, wrath and God's uh, will for his people to wake up. And so uh, today uh, is thankfully peppered with hope, but there's a good deal of exhortation in there as well. And so um, as you guys uh, get ready there, I want to tell you guys a little bit more about uh, myself, um, and I promise this ties in, okay? So... Uh, when I was uh, growing up, I grew up in uh, what I like to call an 8-bit wonderland, okay? If you think about it, what has 8 bits, two plumbers, a princess, and a dragon? Super Mario Brothers, okay? So this is kind of the, you know, when I was uh, just getting into, you know, elementary school, um, this little gray box uh, contained all the wonders of the world for me because you could plug in this little cartridge, blow it off, put it in there, and uh, you, you guys know what I'm talking about, bang it a couple times. And you, you could tap into a world that's apart from, from your world, you know, a world of, of fantasy, a world of adventure where you can jump into a mission. I mean, where else can you find super plumbers who go and conquer, you know, a fire-breathing dragon to save a princess named Toadstool, right? And so uh, this is crazy. And so I was, you know, I was excited just like any other kid. And before this, you know, there's kids watching television. Before this, there's kids reading books. I mean, the, right now, you wives are probably nudging your husbands because you know, like, the things that they're doing all the time that gets their attention. But whatever it is, we all have these things that fascinate us, right? And so as a kid, you know, you get in, involved in that. And so what happens when, when every kid, you know, they get a brand new video game, it's hard to shake them from it, right? And so I was a kid with some responsibilities around the house. Uh, my parents, you know, had chores for me to do. And so uh, after dinner was over, you know, and a mom, I cleaned my plate and I finished my peas, you know, can I go play? And then she'd be like, okay, sure. And I'm gone, right? In my beanbag chair, I got my controller, you know, the two buttons and the thingy, and I'm just going like crazy uh, on Mario. But then sometimes I would forget that one of my responsibilities is to take out the trash, and so I'd hear this, this sweet and loving voice come up to me from downstairs. Ryan, you forgot to take out the trash. Okay, <laughs> you know. And what am I doing? I'm still going. I got my thing going, right? My mom's cramping my style here, you know. I got some things to beat here. I'm looking for a warp. And so um, I'm going, you know, I'm playing this game. And so 15 minutes goes by, you know, and you hear again, Ryan, uh, the trash isn't going to take itself out. My mom doesn't talk exactly like that, but it's... Sometimes it was close. And so, you know, okay, mom, I'll be right there. You know, no way, man. I am cranking on this thing. And it's funny because uh, every parent knows this, right? What does a kid have to do to stop the video game? Just hit pause. You know, you could stop in the middle of whatever you're doing and, and be obedient, but no, we kids have our thing going on, you know? And so you know you're in trouble when after the second and third time your mom yells up the stairs when, when, when a, a figure, a dark looming figure appears in the doorway, right? And, you know, the, the look on the face is like, are you stupid or are you just deaf, you know? <laughs> and then you're like, oh, no, oh, wait, okay, well, I'm going to right now, you know? And, like, before you can do anything, all of a sudden, whoop, there goes the box, there goes the plugs, it's gone, you know? And guess what? Guess who's taking out the trash faithfully after dinner every single day now? This guy. Why? Because we learn sometimes the hard way 
that, that delayed obedience is no obedience at all, right? That delayed obedience, when, when our parents call, when our loving parents call, that we are supposed to respond because delayed obedience is disobedience. And this phenomenon, we learn hopefully as kids eventually, this phenomenon that when, when authority calls in our life that we're supposed to be immediately responsive is something that we kind of get when it comes to you know, damage control in the household. But it's something that with, with the Lord, we sometimes lose sight of the fact that our loving Heavenly Father, when He calls, He is worthy of our response and our obedience. And we get stuck into this pattern sometimes. And, and I know, because I'm preaching to myself this morning, and when, when God calls and we say, well, just wait a minute, God, I kind of got a thing going on right now. I'm kind of in the middle of something. Can you just, can you just wait a second? We know we start, we start to see we have a heart problem there because you don't tell the God of the universe, wait, hold, just a second. Because when you start to do that, you start to realize that, that your actions are not simply just lazy actions. It's not just that, that you're doubtful or you want to think about it sometime. Your hesitancies are based on the preservation of your comfort or your thing. And you just don't want to sacrifice to be obedient to the Lord. And I know this, again, because this is me. And oftentimes, I think especially, this is a very churched area here in Northern California. And I'm, I'm, speak, I'm preaching to the choir today because we feel like we're pretty good people, honestly. I mean, some of us, you know, we, we've specialized in, in just taking those acceptable sins and, you know, and kind of keeping them under the rug in the corner, but we're not blatantly rebellious against God. So we start to feel pretty good. But the problem is, is that, that our subtle sins and this subtle rebellion we have when we choose to, to put off the Lord, it's, it's a different type of struggle for us. And in reality, our apathy, our apathy can begin to show that, that we, we say we believe in the Lord, yeah, but apathy, yeah, it's, it's about belief. You can believe whatever you want to. Apathy is, is, is cut out of our lives when it's, it's, it's beaten down by action, by conviction. It's, it's an absence of, of motivation that causes us to get into this place in general. And we can't fool ourselves in thinking that our intents, our intents are what make us holy and righteous. Because our good intentions don't take us very far in life, right? I mean, I've had good intentions since the beginning of the year. I made my you know, New Year's resolutions. I've had some good intentions to lose five pounds you know, or more. And guess what keeps happening? I think healthy thoughts all the time. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I think positively. You know, I see carrot sticks going through my brain, but I keep finding bags of peanut M&Ms in my hand, you know. And when I'm stressed, I got a Mountain Dew, and I'm just killing it, you know. And so I, I can't be shocked then when, when the, the sum result of that is, is a lack of fitness, right? I'm not getting fitter. I'm getting fatter, okay, because my good intentions aren't enough. Or, or maybe in your marriage, you know, you're not choosing to, to wreck or sabotage your marriage. You don't want to do that. But it's the apathy, it's the lack of decision and motivation to make a choice that changes the reality you're in right now. To deal with that burr that's in the saddle of your marriage. To deal with that, that point of disagreement or that wound that you've buried now and it's causing distance and separation from your spouse. It's that apathy that we allow to stay around. We don't want our marriage to fail, but we're not doing anything to make it better. And you think about you know, your relationship with your kids. No one wants to be an absentee parent, right? You don't want to phone in, you know, your presence and your kids' most valuable times of life. But you continue to allow your work schedule to consume your life and your family's on the back burner. And when you do that time after time, yeah, you're intent. I want to take this weekend off. I want to get more time off. I want to, I want to be there. Your intentions, when, when they're not matched up with the reality of an effort to be there in a kid's life, you know, weeks, months, years go by and you've missed out on your child's, your child's life. 
And, you know, these are all things we deal with all, all the time. But the one we seem to really easily put on the back burner is that we don't want to remain in the same place spiritually year after year after year, right? We don't intend to not grow. It's just that when things get busy, when life gets crazy, the easiest person to put on the back burner is the person who we don't get flack from physically in our life. It's the Lord. And so when push comes to shove, our time with him gets delayed and put away. And when God says, hey, I've got a great opportunity now. Why don't you, why don't you come with me now, experience the joy of obedience? We say, God, I love you, and that's a great idea, but maybe next week, okay? He says that those resources that I've entrusted to you, that I want you to leverage for the kingdom, right now you've got an opportunity. Let's jump in, get in the game. And you say, God, that's great, but I'm going to wait and see how big my tax return is before I'm obedient. I don't want to give until it hurts too much. Or he says, those gifts that I've entrusted to you for ministry, for making a difference, those things you're passionate about there that you want to use, your good intentions have not put those things into practice. When are you going to say, I'm in, I volunteer, I'm starting this ministry, I'm joining this initiative here, I'm going to make the time to make it happen. And you realize that this apathy we have, it fools us into thinking again that we are obedient, but it's not our intentions, our actions that reveal the quality and the depth of our discipleship. You can have all the great intentions you want in the world, but you need to understand this, and this is the fill in the blank today, is that an apathetic life is a rebellious life. We can't fool ourselves into thinking that our apathy is not an offense to God, because it's not like we're choosing nothing. Apathy is not just saying, I don't care, or maybe later, it's choosing something else, choosing something easy for us. And even when we tell God tomorrow, we're choosing ourselves today. And so you understand this apathy here, it's a sickness, it's a disease, and that the book of Isaiah deals with this very clearly here, because apathy could be the death of your faith. Apathy could be the death of your marriage. It could be the demise of your family. And if you don't wake up today, if we don't see in the book of Isaiah the loving Heavenly Father calling us out of our stupor, then when you wake up, you're going to find yourself miles from where you want to be, because there is no park in discipleship. Because the, the current of this world, it pulls us away from God. There's a drift in everything in life. If we want to, to find the life that God is calling us to, we have to be intentional and diligent every day of our life. Which brings us then to Isaiah chapter 32. And so Isaiah chapter 32 is on page 592 in your little um, blue Bibles there um, in the pews. We're going to understand here that, that our God has a good plan for us here. And it's all based upon his character, his identity, his authority, his power. And so let's jump in to Isaiah chapter 32. And, and uh, because we're dealing with a, a pretty big amount of text here, again, we're going to kind of detail it out in the first couple of chapters. And then we're going to kind of hit the uh, last few overarchingly, okay? So don't freak out when you find that when we get done with chapter 33. It's all part of the plan, okay? So... But let's jump in. Isaiah chapter 32. Let's, uh, let's read this together and, uh, and, and dig in. Isaiah 32 verse 1 says this. It says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Let's just think about this for a second, okay? Because key to Isaiah's hope and his deliverance here is this understanding that a king is going to come and reign in righteousness. And we're dealing here now with the divided kingdom of Israel, right? And so we got, we got Israel, we have Judah. And so we're dealing with Judah, especially where Isaiah is at right now. And, and we're dealing with the threat of a nation called Assyria. Let's throw the map up on the screen, the first map there. And I'll show you guys again, just if you're new here. Uh, we've been talking for a while. And uh, don't you always think it's cool when Lance pulls out the laser pointer? It's like... Vroom, 
like lightsaber. Okay, so sorry. <laughs> we all we all kind of are uh, distracted here. So up here in the in the far corner of uh, the known world at the time, Assyria is sitting here as the big boy on the block. Okay, they're the powerful force, and so Assyria is up here, and they are deciding to come down, and they're picking, they're setting their sights on Jerusalem. And so uh, King Sennacherib is about to, as we're going to find in this passage, he's going to go down and march upon Jerusalem in order to try to, to take them over. I mean, God's using them as an instrument of his, of his waking up call to the people of Jerusalem here. And so when he says, as we look at Jerusalem, it's a pretty small dot on the map. Jerusalem had seen in, in totality in the, in the combined kingdom, the, in the, the divided kingdom, there's over 41 kings, 41 kings who come to power. And of those 41 kings, guess how many of those kings could be called righteous or good? Only eight of those kings were considered to be worth their obedience to God. They didn't shipwreck their calling. And so when Isaiah calls in, in chapter 32, verse 1, it says, Behold, a king is coming who will reign in righteousness. They're going, yeah, we've heard that before. You know, These kings that keep coming up here, they keep leading us astray. And so what, what they immediately think of then is, well, since this guy keeps messing up and this guy keeps messing up, they look forward to the hope of the Messiah coming. And as we look here, we, we too will understand and interpret this, that, that the Messiah, the predicted Messiah, was to come. And on Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and one piece of this prophecy was fulfilled there. Because the king came in, and some people recognized Jesus as he came in and said, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. He said, God save now. This is, this is the son of David we've been hoping for. But it's crazy because five days later, their cries and they're, they're waving the palm branches turn into to pointing fingers and jeers of crucify, crucify. And they hung the king on a cross. But it all was in God's plan, even as, uh, even as we've talked about this morning so far, that God planned on this. And, and God was coronating with a crown of thorns, the king of glory, who was to reign. And he's implementing a different type of kingdom than the Jews expected here. And so we're looking here and we're looking finding Jesus is fulfilling it 2,000 years ago. And he will fulfill it when he comes again to establish the messianic kingdom permanently. The new heavens, the new earth. And so as we understand here, a king is important, right? Because in America, we have a really hard time. You know, we don't do well with kings, okay? There's a little thing called the Revolutionary War, you know, where we said no taxation without representation, like, we don't want a king bossing us around. And there's a little bit of that American rebellion still in us today. Because when we hear that a king is coming, we go, great, right? Because we, we think dictatorship. We think tyranny when, when a king comes. But the, the, God's intentional with it. He's not sending a president someday. He's sending a king. Why? Because a king, his authority can't be questioned. A king doesn't pause and ask for a vote. <laughs> A king doesn't have the, the legislative and the judicial and the, the executive branch tell him what to do. He is all in one. And when we go and we hear from God and we take our democ democracy with us, we say, God, that's, that's great, this decree of yours, but, but I'd like to negotiate a little bit here. I want to massage that. Let's work off kind of the, 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 the sharp edges of that, that call for obedience. And our democracy can kind of get the best of us. And so, so understand here that there's a king coming, and this king will be righteous. And it says that unlike the other kings, he's going to be a place of, of hiding, of shelter, a, a rest for us, a refreshment, instead of the people who have been oppressing and, and beating down the people of Israel. So now look in, in verse 3 as we continue on here. These poetic images of the Messiah's kingdom continue. It says, in that day, in verse 3, it says, Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. Verse 4, The heart of the hasty will understand and know and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. 
So what, what is this here? So we have these people here who are apparently uh, going to be restored to their sight and, and their hearing, and their heart will be understanding at last. Well, if you remember Isaiah's call in, in back in chapter 6, God said, you know, basically he, he, st- he stops things. He feels things back, and Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. And God says, who will go for us? Who will I send? And Isaiah, he, he puts his arm in the air, and he says, here I am, Lord, send me. He's volunteering. And the call of Isaiah is, is kind of exciting until he hears these words about this is his call. In verse 9, the Lord says to him this. He says, and, and God said, go and say to this people, this, this stubborn, stiff-necked people of mine. He says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And so when Isaiah hears that call, he's like, man, I signed up for the wrong job. You know, I wanted to be the guy who's, who's bringing this hope and is restoring this confidence here. And, and Isaiah signs up for the job of beating his head against the stubborn wall of Israel. When he hears these words here of the time that's coming, when eyes will be open and ears will be unstopped, his hope is that, man, this is wonderful because this time of discipline of the Lord will be, will be undone. And again, if we look at the ministry of Jesus here, there's so many pieces of fulfillment here that Jesus has in this, in this prophecy today. Because when Jesus comes on the scene, then and he, he's seen, what's he doing? He's healing, he's, he's restoring sight, and he's healing the deaf, and he's, he's, he's picking up the lame off their mats and telling them to walk. And all these things caused John the Baptist, who's in jail at the time. If you guys have been watching the, the, history, uh, the history Channel version of the Bible, you know, we just, you know, John the Baptist just... Whoosh, just kind of got what was coming to him recently. But John the Baptist, while he's in prison, he's looking and he's seeing Jesus doing these things. And he sends his disciples and says, hey, guys, ask Jesus, are you the one we're expecting or should we look for somebody else? He's going, dude, I know I'm supposed to prepare the way, but you're kind of a humble guy. I don't know if this is the king we're looking for here. And Jesus tells John's disciples, go back and tell John that the blind see, that the deaf hear, that the lame walk, that the leprosy, the people with leprosy are healed and the dead are raised. There's your answer. So Jesus is, again, the fulfillment of this prophecy. And in in the kingdom of God, as he works and as he moves, he unfolds a a better place. And he says that he's going to set right, not just through his people today, through the church marching forward, but but one day things will be seen for what they are. And in verse 6 he says, I'm sorry, verse 5, it says, The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord. He says, these jokers you guys have who call themselves leaders, the time is coming when they will be seen for what they are. When I'm going to reveal and light will shine on them, and they will be seen for the corrupt leaders that they are. He says in in verse 6 that these foolish people are intent to do these things. He says they're intent in verse 6 to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied. And to deprive the thirsty of drink. So who are the leaders that God is going to call out? It's those people who are ignoring the needs of the hungry and thirsty. It's those who do not reach down and help out the oppressed. In fact, they afflict the oppressed. In verse 7 it says, As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words. Even when the plea of the needy is right. He says, these people don't just ignore the less fortunate. They go out of their way to fleece these people, to take from them, to steal from them, and, and to basically to stomp on them, to get themselves advanced. 
He says, this is not the way in the kingdom of God that things are going to work. He says, in the kingdom of God, we're going to have a higher, better way. And in verse 8, he explains. He says, in the king's kingdom, in verse 8, but he who is noble, truly noble, plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. And so the difference here is in is not just in the intention, but in the actions here, the character. And this verse here is an amazing verse. It's a verse that in Bible college, I went to a Christian college down in the southwest corner of Missouri called Ozark Christian College. And uh, I was an RA my junior year, and we were looking for this ultimate man verse to encapsulate what we were wanting to accomplish in the lives of these young men who are about to go out to ministry. And in Bible college, you've got to be really careful because if you take a verse out of context and use it for your theme verse, you're like kicked out. <laughs> They're like, you're an idiot. Context is king, you know, so you can't go messing this up. And so we found buried in the Bible this one little verse that became kind of our mantra. And we literally got a, a, a coat of arms, like a, a knight standing there, because in the NIV, guys, listen to this. This is the verse you should hang in your man cave, okay? Because in, in the NIV, here's how uh, chapter 32, verse 8 reads. It says, but the noble man makes noble plans, and by noble deeds he stands. Isn't that cool? Don't you just want to read it? But the noble man makes noble plans, and by noble deeds he stands, you know, and like grab your swords and go out to glory. I mean, that's exciting. I mean, if we could get that as God's people, that God's people are to be about his honor and, and the nobility of following him in character and integrity. Can you imagine how that would change society if we were to become men and women like that? And, and I can encourage you families out there to raise up young sons and young daughters who understand the importance of character and sincerity through and through because this is what God is looking for. Those with noble hearts whose plans are to follow in his footsteps and his will. And on these deeds, they will be able to stand. And that's hope right there. That's hope of, of what God is doing. And I see this congregation is full of people with noble hearts and noble deeds. And we need to continue to be so all the more. And, and now, after this season kind of, 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 of praising them, buckle up, okay, because he's about to unleash on a specific group of people here who don't understand this and who aren't applying it correctly. And in, in verse 9, uh, he, he speaks to the complacent women of Jerusalem. So I'm sorry, ladies, you came the wrong Sunday, okay? So, <laughs> so here we go, verse 9. Isaiah says, as he warns the wayward nation of Jerusalem, verse 9, Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. So basically he says, ladies, eyes up here, eyes up here. He says, wake up, ladies, okay? Get up. No, 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 stop napping. Come on, we're going to have a talk. He says, this is what the Lord has to say to you. And he says uh, in verse 10, in little more than a year you will shudder, you complacent women, for the grape harvest fails. The fruit harvest will not come. And so why would this cause the complacent women of Jerusalem to freak out? I mean, is this like the real housewives of Jerusalem, you know? And they're like, the wine harvest won't come, you know? Oh, what are we going to do? And so now they're shuddering because they can't imagine. You know, what's the deal here? Well, he's talking, he's talking about not a, a agricultural failure. He's talking about the fact that when the Assyrians come marching down here and they come through the valley, what they're going to do as they come and march upon God's people and God's land is they're going to bring destruction with them. And that harvest that you can't wait to pluck, to continue to fatten yourselves and to, and to, do, to be happy and, and comfortable, he's saying that'll be gone because these people will be eating the fruit off your vines. These people will be taking from you, and you're not going to be able to go out and harvest anymore because you're going to be too busy locked up in the walls of Jerusalem, scared for your lives. 
And so he says then when these Assyrians come in, in little less than a year, and so we, we say they came in 701 B.C., so we're literally setting our watches at this point saying their time is close at hand. He says your crop will not fail, but there's going to be another coming here. And he says then in verse 11, tremble you women who are at ease and shudder you complacent ones. There it is again. Tremble you women who are at ease. And ladies, this is not just uh, an indictment for ladies. This is an indictment for, for all of us who look at, at comfort as a source of security here. And so this, this word ease, we've got to understand because Isaiah is about to make a play on words concerning ease. And he's going to talk about the ease we earn for ourselves and the ease that, that God provides for us. But, but what is exactly God's preaching against here? I mean, is God against the easy life? I mean, is God against our comfort? I mean, is God, is he, you know, anti-air conditioning? Is he anti-cushy chairs? Should we trade these in for wooden pews? Is that what we need to do here in order to focus on God? Some people have literally taken it to that point. You know, asceticism is that exact thing. Let's give up comfort so we can focus on God. I I don't think God is against, like, you know, infomercials. Like, three easy payments, you know. You know, I I need seven hard payments or I'm not even going to go buy it, okay? So that's not it. And for these women here, I don't think the exact problem they have here uh, is, is simply the fact that they, you know, are, are taking too many naps or they're hanging out with their girlfriends at chauffeur bucks all day long. You know what I mean? Like drinking goat milk lattes or something like that. I don't think this is what our problem is. Chauffeur bucks is Jewish Starbucks. You guys need to go to Jerusalem. So anyway, I was waiting all weekend to say that. So, okay. So here, here's what we got going on here, right? I mean, what we have here, this problem here, is that these people are not, are not looking to God as they should. And people understand that the parallel between what the, what the Israelites were depending on in this time and what we depend on is the same things, right? Because what do we look to for comfort and for refuge and for security? We look to our wealth. We look to the cushion that we've built around us. And when we lose our job or, or when the margin gets real slim, we start to freak out because we don't know how things are going to be taken care of anymore. I mean, we need insurance. I mean, we need to be, you know, having things in our hand because we can't just be relying on God. You know, we don't say that, but we act like that all the time. And these people here, they were confident that they were going to be delivered. Why? Because they had stuff and they had walls and they had even made a treaty with Egypt that said, hey, if we get in trouble, you come and bail us out. You know, and that's what we have. We have, we have bailout plans all over the place here. And God is only useful as a last resort in our lives. God says, is that the kind of comfort you have? That's where you find your security? Then that will soon be taken away from you because I can't have you leaning on anything else but me. And in this sense, God is anti-comfort because comfort leads to our disobedience, right? Because comfort basically breeds our apathy. And in that apathy, we are not willing to leave the comfortable world we're around to jump into obedience with God. Imagine if God pulled up here today, okay, and he was to load you up on, on a road trip. Wouldn't that be cool if God literally pulled up? Like, I don't know what kind of car God drives in your mind, but, you know, it'd be a good car. I'm sure it would. And if he loaded you up on a road trip and said to you, okay, this is great, you know, we're, we're going to go, we're going to spend some quality time together. I could snap my fingers and take you there, but we're driving today to Yosemite Valley. And I'm going to show you guys, have you, how many people have been to Yosemite before? It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. I was just there last summer. And we're going to drive through Yosemite. What I'm going to do here is you don't need a tour guide. And I'm going to show you the God of the universe, the one whose handiwork crafted the Yosemite Valley. I'm going to show you the detailed, intricate things that I did to reveal my glory here. You go, this is great. So you jump in the car and you start to go. But what do kids do when they get in the car on a road trip? 
right? Your kids do all kinds of stuff. You're like, I'll turn this thing around, you know? And so what do they do immediately, you know? They either take a nap or they get out the iPad, you know? And, and while you're going through these beautiful places on these road trips, what are your kids doing? Whoop, boom, angry birds, whoop, boom, you know, whatever it is. I mean, we have these distractions here. Can you imagine the audacity of being on a road trip with the Lord of the universe and being distracted by, by stuff or by things? You know, we're, we're driving down. He's, he's showing us things. We're, God, this is great. You guys like 86 adjustments on this thing. This is wonderful. And you get down to Yosemite Valley, and, and the whole time he was explaining things, you missed it completely because he's like, oh, and Half Dome was Hold Dome until I went, boom, Half Dome. Praise the Lord. He's like, and now you know people are climbing up this thing, and you're just completely ignoring God. And you get there, and you, and you stop, and he parks the car. He's like, okay, this is great. It's like, God, great trip. I said, no, no, we've just begun. He said, now we're going to get out of the car, and I'm going to show you. We're going to hike to the heights, and I'm going to take you through the back deer trails of this place, and I'm going to show you just how deep my glory goes in this place. And you go, God, that's, that sounds like a great idea, but could I just get the postcard? I mean, uh, it sounds like a lot of work. I mean, this seat is so comfortable, and, and I just kind of got adjusted how I like. Please, don't take me from where I'm at into someplace different, someplace scary. And I have to say, I'm like that sometimes. You like that? When God, he calls and he says, now's the time. You thought that this was the destination. Now it just gets better because I'm going to show you things. And you're going to experience my presence and my joy in ways you could not imagine before. But we go, God, I'm good. This was as far as I signed up to go. And God goes, no, that's not how it works. That's not how following me works. And we, and we are afraid to get out and trust in the Lord here. And that's why he's so, he's so hard on these people because the complacency that they have towards him leads to disobedience. And so God tells them, he says in verse 11, he says, strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. He says, beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, those things that are failing, verse 13, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. He said, you should mourn now because your comfort's taken away. Because in your fertile soil now, the briars and the thorns of oppression are growing up to choke out those crops. So you can, so you can see that you can't find your security in these places. He says in verse 14, the palace is forsaken. The populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. All the things you guys built for yourselves for security are going to be empty and abandoned and wild things are going to take them over. Why? Because you depended on those things too greatly. And this, this prophecy would come to fulfillment not when Assyria would come, but later when Babylon would ultimately come and conquer. And literally, the people of Jerusalem would be carried off to captivity and the city would be left with, with scarcely a remnant. And so this is what God is promising for them here. And so uh, in, in verse 15, though, he, he again turns to hope trying to orient you guys how to feel before we get to the verse because this is a very uh, back and forth passage okay but but now we, we get a little bit of hope because god's wrath and judgment doesn't last forever because when he takes away our comfort and he brings us to repentance then it says that these things this this these troubles will hunt you down until in verse 15 until the spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest he says that these things will happen until I send the Spirit. And what the Spirit specializes in is bringing life and revival and refreshment. And don't we need life and revival and refreshment in our lives? Don't we need God to shake us and to wake us and to restore hope in what is an empty and dead church in this country? 
And we can be that people. But it starts and ends with the Spirit of God being unleashed. When we tap in to what God's power has for us, if we would just get outside of our comfort zone. And so the Spirit, it says, is going to be the key to this. And then when this happens, these are the results in verse 16. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And this peace here, that's the ease that God brings. That's that play on words that Isaiah is using here. And the result of righteousness, quietness. Again, another play on words in the Hebrew. And trust forever. So God says the key to lasting security and ease is not in the stuff that you can get for yourself, but it's in my presence and power and provision, my spirit working in your life. And what is the fruit of the spirit? What is the fruit in our life of the spirit working? It's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. This is what happens when we walk with the spirit of God. We don't have to wait for this fulfillment to come in its fullness. Why? Because we have the spirit of God inside of us right now. You can partake in lasting, everlasting peace and hope right now because God is faithful and his spirit rests inside all believers. And so therefore, our our hope is complete and full. And so my question for you as we look at this is, is to question yourself right now, to put your life through this filter of ease. Where do you find your comfort? Where do you find your security? Because if we find it any place else besides the Lord, then we are in danger, like the Israelites, of having basically the props knocked out from underneath us here so we can find but one lasting place of security. And we go, man, that sounds hard to depend on God. (laughs) That sounds so difficult to put our faith in Jesus. But Jesus says, yeah, it's going to be hard. You've got to die to yourself daily. You've got to pick up your cross and follow me. That's surrender and sacrifice to the umpteenth degree. He says, here's what you're going to find when you do this. Not just toil and pain and sweat and hardship and, 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 and toil in your life. It's the fact that my yoke, Jesus says, is easy. When you bear my weight on your shoulders, you'll find that the burden is light. It's not because you're so awesome. It's because I'm here doing it with you. You're doing it in my strength and in my power. And when you follow in my footsteps, you will find that your, your, foot, your footsteps do not fall. That your strength does not fail because I'm the one walking with you. And there's our hope. And he says, and and basically I'll paraphrase the rest of the chapter for you. He says that one day you will rest in security, my security. But now a day approaches when the sandcastle that you have built for yourself to protect you will be flattened and destroyed. However, a new day will come when I will reverse your distress and secure, secure you once and for all in my abundance and my blessing. But in, in chapter 33, now he's, he now switches to curse. In chapter 33, Assyria is now the people in the crosshairs of God's wrath and prophecy. And he says to the nation of Assyria, again, these people from the north who are coming down, thinking that they're big and bad and tough. He says in verse 1, Ah, you destroyer. You who yourself have not been destroyed. You traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. He says, yeah, I'm using you guys for now. And you guys may think you're tough, but you're unstoppable for a season. And now understand this, that your time and your security and your amazing, your awesomeness, your military prowess and the, and the smart you know, strategies of your leadership, they will be taken over because Babylon's about to come and backslap Assyria into a place of submission. And then Babylon becomes the big kid on the block. And so the cycle goes throughout history, but God's telling them that they need to understand that, that their time is near. Skip down to verse 3. It says, uh, this, this, this uh, mandate from the Lord goes on, At the tumultuous noise, peoples, these enemies of God, flee. 
When you lift yourself up, Lord, nations are scattered. This is what God will do in verse 5. It says, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. He says, listen, nations of the world, I'm going to bring you low, and I'm going to exalt myself. And so then we'll see how that dichotomy is supposed to work, because I am the Lord of the universe. I am the one true sovereign one. And when the Lord is exalted, then he will also exalt his people, and he will bring with him salvation, wisdom, knowledge. And the fear of the Lord, our respect of our sovereign king, will be our treasure instead of our stuff. In verse 7, though, he says, if you don't get this, and the, the Israelites, they weren't getting it so far, Isaiah kind of fast-forwards the clock to the time when the Assyrians are now at the gate, and he predicts what will happen as, as the people of Jerusalem freak out. Verse 7 says, Behold, speaking of his people, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. You've seen these movies before, right, where the barbarian horde marches up. I mean, this is like Lord of the Rings type stuff here, right? And they stop, and it's like army as far as the eye can see. And the people inside, are they're shaking in their boots, or their sandals, as the case may be. And so they're freaked out, right? And this envoy of peace, you know, uh, can we get a couple volunteers to go out and negotiate with the barbarian horde? Any volunteers? Any volunteers? You know? You know, and like, you know, three guys, like, you know, everyone steps back, and the three guys are up there like, oh, no, you know. Like, you know, they don't pee their pants, they pee their robes as they walk out there because they are frightened to death, you know. And so scared, they come back weeping because they hear the terms of these people are, we're not negotiating here, we're coming to take you guys down. Your time's over, you're destroyed. And they come back, and, and all the heroic people of Jerusalem who depended on the strength of their sword and shield and their hope in Egypt, they're crying in the streets. And the envoys of peace, they're weeping bitterly because no peace will be found. It says in verse 8 that the highways lie waste. The travel ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. When these people come in, they're taking no prisoners here. You can't even leave to go out and travel the highways and byways here. You are not safe. It says these covenants are broken. And you hear the word covenant, and immediately in the Old, in the Old Testament, we think of God's covenant with his people. And we have to ask, does God break his covenant? Is it possible here that God's hand removing at this time is him somehow nullifying what he promised for his people and that's not the case god is consistent god is faithful and even in his discipline he is faithful to restore he's faithful to 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 give up his end of the bargain in deliverance as he delivers the messiah and the new covenant is fulfilled and, and jesus implements something a new work of god but this covenant that's broken here, it's interesting because the covenant that, uh, that these people here were depending on was, was one they made actually with the Assyrians themselves. Let me see that second map real quick. If you look, and uh, we, we find this from a different place in uh, the Bible, we find it in 2 Kings chapter 18. It's a chronicle of these accounts here. This, this is not just something we're making up to fit in with history. This is, these are parallel events here. And in 2 Kings chapter 18, it tells about how in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah. And this little trail here that comes down, it shows his path down from uh, Assyria, and he, he comes conquering, and he conquers these cities, and he gets to the city of Lachish. And at Lachish, all of a sudden, Jerusalem, which is right up here, they're freaking out because it's just a short trip over to the valley and up the hill, and here they are at their gates. And so now they go, whoa, what are we going to do? Because God has not stopped these marauders from coming into our city. They could feel the hot breath on their neck, and they go, man, it's, it's time we do something. 
And so Hezekiah says, okay, I'm going to apologize to Sennacherib. Let's send him some money. Let's send him a tribute so he'll get off our back. And it says in 2 Kings 18, verse 14, And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. This is a huge sum of money. And, and listen to where Hezekiah goes to get this money. As, as the nation of Jerusalem is you know, practically broke anyway, it says in verse 15, And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord. He takes God's money to pay off an enemy. And in the treasuries of the king's house, he empties those as well. And it says in verse 16, At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that King Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So how scared is Hezekiah that God isn't going to come through? He's so scared that he, he basically robs the house of the Lord. The gold that he himself had, had ordered to be there to refurbish the temple of the Lord is now chipped off and sent away to a foreign invader so he can buy himself some time. How often do we compromise? How often do we freak out and go to any length to try to, to, try to avoid destruction when all we need to do is turn to the Lord? And Hezekiah, he forgets this lesson that, that when a bully comes knocking, you don't pay a bully, right? I mean, when the bully asks for your lunch money and punches you in the nose, guess what he does? He takes, you know, your, your lunch and your cookies too, you know? He, he takes whatever he wants to. And so he, he realized later, as, as the king of Assyria continues to march on him, that he has just donated to his own war campaign. He's donated to his demise. So here they are now, and they're enjoying the, the fruits of the nation of Israel. They've already pre-pillaged them through a payment from Hezekiah. And so God, seeing this, God, his, his heart is broken. And it says in verse 10 that the Lord finally arises here. In their desperation, Israel, the Israelites finally, when they see how dire the situation is with this horde outside their doors, they turn to God. And God, it says, arises. In verse 10, there's this word, now. And in Hebrew, the word is atah. And it's got kind of a, 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 a guttural now attack sound to it. And God says, now, now, now. Verse 10, now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You guys mess with the wrong deity today, Assyria, because now is my time. And it's true because, uh, because as the Assyrians stood there, thumbing their nose at God and his people, God sent his angel in the night, and 185,000 of them were wiped out in one fell swoop. And when the sun came up the next day, the enemies of the Lord laid decimated. And so God, in his deliverance, he says that I will not be shaken. I will not give up on my people here. And the rest of the chapter basically outlines the fact that God, when he establishes his kingdom, will not be shaken. And so we'll jump over and I'll paraphrase for you uh, from verse 20. God says, Behold, when I come and when I arise, the city of the Lord is established forever. It will not be moved. There the Lord in majesty will be our peace and our defense. And no invaders will threaten you there by land or by sea. God says, The time of enemies coming and knocking on your door is over. Because I will stop them by land, I will stop them by sea, I will stop them before they even come, because my kingdom is a kingdom of lasting peace. And this is good. And how is he going to accomplish that peace? Well, in chapter 34 and 35, he shows us. In chapter 34, if I was to summarize it, because paraphrasing has been super fun in the book of Isaiah so far, I could say it in three words, okay? Here's chapter 34 for you. Gloom, doom, blood, Okay? If you, re if you read this book, I mean, this is like rated R material here in, in the Bible. I mean, this is God coming up with, with wrathful vengeance on his enemies. 
And when we see this, when we see literally the blood of God's enemies being spilt by the sword of the Lord and their blood soaking the earth, their fat sitting there, it's disgusting language. You go, dude, how, how do we reconcile this God of love who, who sold the world, he gave his only son, and this, and this God of wrath? And if you, if you think that, that there's two different things going here, you know, there can be some confusion. But to clear it up, in, before I summarize uh, the, the highlights of chapter 34, it's important that we ask the question, is God really loving? Could a really, truly loving God punish his enemies fairly and have that still jive with his character? And you think about it, you think about it from a parent's perspective, and I'm not a parent yet, um, but I had parents. I would wager that many of you all did as well. And so, um, so having, you know, having grown up, you know, with loving parents who put boundaries in my life, what I know about a parent is, is that a parent isn't supposed to just tell their kids that they can do whatever they want, right? I mean, can you imagine if that was your parenting strategy? You sit down, you know, and when Junior's born, you say, okay, we're just going to commit, and whatever this little guy wants, we're going we're gonna to do it for him. So when he comes on his fifth birthday and he says, hey, I want the keys to the car, you go, sure, no problem. He's, the gas is on the right, the brake is on the left, you know, and there's these signs with numbers on him, and Never mind the signs of numbers. Okay, just go. Have fun. And he loads up his little, you know, five-year-old friends and jumps in the car and goes. You're like, great. I just was never prouder of him in that moment. <laughs> you know, what parent would do that, right? And so you, you, you think about, you know, when your teenage daughter comes and asks to borrow your credit card to go shopping at the mall. You go, hey, babe, no problem. Here you go. Here's the credit card, you know. Take it and just swipe that thing until they cut it in half. God bless you. God bless you. And if you parents go out there and do that today, I'll tell you what. Yeah, it's one way to make your kids love you, right? But it's also another way to teach them complete, you know, like disregard for any boundary or consequence in life. And so when a, when, when a loving parent, you know, if they did that to a kid, what would they do? They'd set up this precedent here. Whatever you want, you can have. doesn't matter. Yeah, just, you know, put it on credit. Whatever. Go. Run amok. Have fun. You know, or what if your kid came home with like a starter pack of drugs, okay, from school? Like, hey, you know, I've been saving my lunch money and I bought, you know, a starter pack of all the most addictive substances, mom and dad. You know, I'm glad to see you're showing some passion for something in life, okay? Go on up to your room and have fun, you know? When you come down off your three-day drug stupor, I'll bring you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and you can start over again. What parent would do that? What parent would say, hey, well, to earn a little money on the side, maybe you could cook meth in our bathtub and sell it out the back door. No loving parent would just wantonly let their kid jump into sin, right? Because a loving parent wouldn't allow their child to break the law. A loving parent wouldn't rejoice and celebrate and clap for them as they led themselves down to their own destruction or the destruction of other people. So doesn't it make sense that a loving Heavenly Father would act in much the same way? That He'd put up guardrails and guideposts in life and that He would expect and desire His children to walk in those ways to preserve themselves in this world He's placed them in. And so when God does that, that is, that is the most loving and just thing He can do is to reveal to us His will. And, and to understand also that God doesn't then punish the world capriciously he's not a fickle god i don't like you very much today i don't like your shirt <laughs> taking people out god judges people according to the measure of their sin and the scriptures say that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of god that we all we all graciously you know deserve the death that we earn from the wages of our sin and so when god punishes he does so equally and we christians didn't get some get out of jail free card what happened with our punishment and our debt Jesus Christ came. God sent his only son. And God didn't, didn't deflect his wrath off of us and shoot in the air. God aimed with all of his might and all of his power at his beloved son. And Jesus took the wrath for us and bore it on the cross unto death. So God is just and he will always be justice 
that you always be justly satisfied in his holiness and in his righteousness here. And we find that the enemies of the Lord, those who do not participate in his offer of grace through Jesus Christ, yeah, there's punishment there because they're getting what they've justly deserved. And the crazy thing is, the motivating thing for me is to understand that, that this message of God's hope and good news, who's it given to? It's given to us. And doesn't it make sense that we who have received that gift of grace, that we who can testify to its power in our life, that we would be the most appropriate ones to go and carry that good news to the world? Because understanding that we deserved wrath and God gave us grace through Jesus Christ, that should motivate us all to go and share the best news with the world. And this coming Easter Sunday, we're going to proclaim that loud and clear. And I hope that you'll understand that you have, you have the words, you have the gospel to explain that to anyone you come into contact with. And that is the hope of the world. And so, so about God's wrath here in this, in this uh, chapter 34, I'm not going to read it for you guys. You know, there's kids in the room and whatnot. But you can go back if you want to read it before bed and have nightmares, be my guest, okay? But chapter 34, there's four things poetically that Isaiah says that the Lord has here very quickly. He says that the Lord, first of all, has rage. This is a poetic device here. He says that God has four things. He uses it systematically to hang his wrath on. God has, first of all, rage. He says the Lord is enraged at the rebellion of the nations. God is ticked because he has been, diso- he's been disobeyed, he's been rebelled against, and his enemies have openly confronted him. So now he says, I will openly leave them slain in the field in humiliation. The second thing God has is God has a sword. And that's a scary thing to think of the sword that God would wield. Because with this sword, it says, the Lord has a sword and it descends for judgment on all his enemies. And the sword is a symbol of his wrath. And that sword, it says, is covered in blood and fat. Because he has gone and he has completely, he's brought vengeance and justice to his enemies. And all this blood imagery and all this, all this uh, sacrifice imagery leads us in, in the third thing to say that God has a sacrifice that he's made. God sacrificed his son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sins. And so here, without, without the, the blood of the lamb covering them, because they've not claimed that blood, he says, fine, I'm going to spill your blood, because there has to be blood to atone for this, and your death is what's coming here. So God makes a sacrifice of his enemies here, like rams and oxen, they're slain, and their blood is spilt and soaks into the ground. In verse 4, and God has a day of vengeance. And this is scary, because this is talking about that ultimate day when God vindicates, when God judges the world. And on that day, he declares once and for all the sentence for his enemies. And where they're sentenced to, it has language uh, symbolic of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. It's where the smoke goes up forever and the flame is never quenched. And the, the apostle John picks that up in Revelation. And speaking of what? Speaking of hell. So that eternal punishment is, is meant to motivate because... It, this is a place where God's enemies are headed, and therefore his wrath is complete and his justice is made perfect. And this is all, as we read later on in the chapter, this is all according to God's perfect plan because God lays out a plumb line and measures. And the, the good lands are now wastelands filled with cursed creatures because God has a plan and it will be executed to the fullest. And that is, that's the summary of, of Isaiah chapter 34. And it, when you look at 35... The, the glorious thing is, is that God does not leave his people with just simply the fear of judgment. Because for the people of God, there is a greater hope and promise than simple punishment. Because God promises hope. And chapter 35 is all about God's hope. And so let's read this to conclude. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 1. It says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. 
they, he's speaking now of the people of the Lord, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. It says where there was destruction now, it's going to burst forth like springtime, the restoration and the hope of God. And this is a reversal of all the devastation that's happened to them now. God has made it right again. And in verse 3, this is my prayer for you. Chapter 35, verse 3. This is the hope we can even have because of our God's heart for his people. It says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And wherever you're at, you need to hear these words in good times or in bad times. Because guess what we have? Weak hands. Weak hands to secure our own future, our own prosperity. Guess what we have? We have weak and feeble knees. We buckle under the pressure of this life. And anxiety and depression chase us down and they hold us down. And we lose hope and we forget that God is a God who saves. And so what does God say to his people? He says, fear not. You're my kids and I'm your God and I can take care of you even now. Wherever you're at, I can come. And it says, I will come and save you. It's a promise. And even you might be going through the toughest time of your life, failing health, ridiculously hard financial situations, whatever it is, God sees you, and he will not leave you abandoned. He may not save you in the way that your comfortable mind wants to be saved, but God is sure to fulfill his promises. And when he does, it says in verse 5, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Then at that time, our veil is removed and we can see and we can hear and we can understand how God's hand has been moving this entire time and it causes us to rejoice. And he says at that time, basically to paraphrase the rest of it, the waters will bubble up in the desert. Your dry land will become an oasis. A safe path will be laid out by the Lord before you called the way of holiness and no one will be able to defile it. All who come upon the path will be led by the Lord. And no harm will come to them, and only the redeemed shall walk there. It reminds me of trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, follow him and acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. This is a promise, not just for the future, but for the present. And it says in verse 10, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. Everlasting joy. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And that's the promise of the ultimate hope. That's Revelation 21, 22. Isn't that amazing, that language there? And I can, I can tell you right now that if you're in a spot, we need to hold fast in the Lord. If you're tempted to give up, hold on, hang on to him. Because how many breaths have you been given until your last day? You have no way of knowing. What do we do with this time, this entrustment, these resources that God has given us from this day until that day? Well, I can tell you, we don't make a cozy place to take a nap and lay down and wait for it to happen. It's not God's will for us. God's will is that we would wake up today. We would choose him today. We would not wait to obey him tomorrow. We would see right now, this very moment, church, this very moment, you can choose to decide and be obedient to God. As you're driving home today, as you go home and you talk over the plans you have as a family, you know, as a financial organization, wherever you do, what you can do to leverage everything you've been given, your gifts, your resources, your time, to bless the
the Lord, to be obedient to him. And my encouragement to you is that you would examine how will you give account of the things that God has blessed you with on that day. You cannot just rest in apathy. How will you choose to be obedient? Because God is calling now. God is speaking to you now. God is looking for your obedience now. Let's pray that we have hearts to hear that voice and to receive it.